Uh, I started with a few uh, happy stories, but uh, I'm going to share with you a tragic story I was told. Someone shared this story of their family. Uh, She grew up in a Christian family. She grew up going to Sunday school every week. They said grace at every meal. Her family was actively involved in their church community. Everything was fine and wonderful until dad got cancer. And as tragic as that diagnosis is on its own, uh, when dad didn't get better, it spiritually tore the family apart. I mean, they were nice, good, moral people. They went to church, they gave to the poor, they did their religious duty, and for what? God wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. Cancer wasn't part of the deal that they signed up for, and it ripped the faith of my friends' families completely apart. They were angry with God. They felt betrayed by God. They felt like they deserved better from God. So what's going on there? Do they have a right to feel angry with God? Do they have a right to feel betrayed? Do they have a right to feel that God owes them something, that they deserve better? Well, there's actually a a big word for what's going on there. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's actually three words. I lied. It's not one big word. It's three words, but one big idea. Now, if you like big words, then you'll love this. But um, a term that was coined by some sociologists back in the 2000s, they went around and they surveyed people in churches and out of churches, and they surveyed what they believed about God and how he worked. And moralistic therapeutic deism is a new religion that Western culture had adopted without even realizing it, and even here in the church. And what it is, is that rather than believing in the God of the Bible, many instead believed in a God who existed to make them feel happy. So instead of coming to God on his terms, instead of observing his character in the scriptures, and then from that working out what is right and true and good and what life is all about, instead we go the other way. I find my own purpose. I decide what is right and true and good for me. And God's role in it all is to make me feel happy, to fulfill my dreams for my life. It's a religion where we keep God at the edge of life, uh, the peripheral, where he's not involved in the day-to-day. And most of the times, I'm pretty good at managing things on my own. But occasionally, like the Uber Eats delivery driver, I need to summon God so he can come fetch something for me so that I can be happy. And when he does, I thank him for the delivery if it comes on time. And then I close the door and I go back to my enjoying my life without him. And if God doesn't deliver what I ask for, or if he doesn't deliver it on time, then I have every right to be angry with him. Like when the Uber Eats guy turns up late and my noodles are cold, I have every right to be angry because he has not let, kept his part of the deal. God has failed his job to make me happy. This is moralistic therapeutic deism, and this is how so many people, even in the church, relate to God. Tragically, this is how my friend's family related to God. Tragically, there are many churches who teach us that this is how we can relate to God, that we can believe in a God like this, a God who is like a heavenly butler. A sky fairy who only exists to make me feel happy. But when we open up the Bible, this is not the God that we meet, is it? As we open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel, uh, what we'll see today is that moralistic therapeutic deism, it's not an invention of Western culture in the last 20 years, it's actually the human problem. East and west, down the centuries, in the church and out of the church, even as we see God's Old Testament people... They believe in a God like this. 
Uh, now, last week we began the series in 1 Samuel and we, we were looking at how 1 Samuel fits in the one big story of the Bible from creation to new creation, God's plan to make right everything in this world, the mess that we've made, uh, to fix it all up again. And as the story comes to 1 Samuel, God's plans, which were vague at the beginning, they start to become a bit clearer and we see that God's plan involves a kingdom. And central to that kingdom is a king, a king who is great and glorious, humble and gentle, a king who is going to bring for God's people an everlasting kingdom. And 1 Samuel, what it's doing is it's preparing us to meet that king, that great king who we know now is Jesus. And like I said last week, each week as we dig into 1 Samuel, we're going to be asking some questions. What does this tell us about God's king? What does this tell us about God's kind of kingdom? And and how does this prepare us to meet God's king and belong to him? Now, it's going to be a few more chapters before we actually meet our first king in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, But these chapters here that we're looking at today are preparing us. Uh, And the big idea for this week, if you miss everything else, the big idea for this week is God's king comes on his terms, not on our terms. God's king comes on his terms, not on our terms. That's how things roll in God's kingdom. If he is the king and if you belong to his kingdom, then things need to be done his way. We exist to serve him and his plans, not the other way around. Now, you didn't come to hear me speak, you came to hear God's word. So we're going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. So it'd be great if you have a Bible and have that open. Carol's going to read uh, verses 1 to 11 for us. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Do you have a page number for us, Carol? Page 232. 232. Thanks, Carol. Near the beginning. Now the Philistines, sorry. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh. And they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. 
The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Thanks, Carol. Uh, now, growing up, I loved the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, and uh, like all the best things in life, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. Great vintage that year. Um, but unlike we see in the movie, uh, the Ark is not a magic box with some kind of mysterious radioactive power trapped inside that kills kind of evil Nazis. That's not what the Ark is. Uh, and it's, if you're wondering as well, did, did, the, did the Israelites lose because they carried the Ark, this massive boat, into battle? Uh, the Ark is not the same Ark that Noah filled with animals. Uh, the Ark here is a box. Uh, it contains a few kind of... Uh, treasured possessions for the people of God, and it has a fancy seat on the top. Uh, I've got a bit of a picture of what it might have looked like. Uh, The ark was a box with a fancy seat on top, but the seat sat empty. Uh, And the seat sat empty in the middle of the tabernacle, and the empty seat was a symbol. And now in The Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you... Have you heard of Lord of the Rings? Um, Books and movies. I, when, when we got married, I had, um, uh, I had a wedding ring that had some Greek inscribed on it. And, and on our honeymoon, we came to New Zealand and people noticed that I had writing on my ring. And they were like, oh, is that from Lord of the Rings, eh, Brew? And I'm like, I had not seen Lord of the Rings, uh, but they loved it here. Uh, so you all probably know what I'm talking about, Lord of the Rings. And in Lord of the Rings, the people of Gondor have been without a king for generations, And there's a rumor and there's a legend that the royal line is still alive in a faraway land. And in the time of great need, their king would return and rescue them. And this hope of a a distant king who will come and rescue his people was symbolized by an empty throne that sat in the great hall in the royal palace. Empty for generations, reminding everyone that they were waiting for their king. Now, I won't spoil the end for you. uh, but, but Tolkien's clearly drawing on the Old Testament image of the Ark of the Covenant, an empty chair, a throne that waits for the coming of the great king, the king who will come and lead his people into safety and to victory and to blessing. And last week we saw that Israel needed, they desperately needed that godly leadership. There was no king, we read at the end of Judges, and there was anarchy in the land. Everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And even the leaders that they did have, the priests, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, those scoundrels, they were incompetent at best and downright wicked at worst. They exploited God's people in the tabernacle. And we saw Israel desperately needs godly leadership. And in chapter 4, it's it's clear that they still suffer under uh, terrible and foolish leaders. See, Israel is at war with its nemesis, the Philistines, uh, and things aren't going well. And Israel is all confused as to why. And we read in chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And here's the confusion, verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They've gone up against the Philistines and they've lost. They've lost uh, 4,000 men and they can't work out why. Uh, But rather than reforming the tabernacle, you know, get rid of the wicked priests, get rid of uh, the um, corrupted worship that was going on there, instead of reforming the tabernacle, 
They raid the tabernacle. They take the ark, they take the king's chair, and they take it out of the tabernacle, and they try to use it like a lucky charm. Uh, Continuing on in verse 3, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. You see, the ark of the Lord's covenant, it's going to be carried into battle like a trinket to bring them good fortune. Now, make make no mistake here, these people believe in God. They believe that God is big and powerful. They believe that God can defeat their enemies for them. But the problem is, is that they want God and what He can give on their terms, not on His terms. They want God as their servant, not as their king. So does God really mind if people treat Him like that? Well, we see what happens. Chapter 4, verse 10. Verse 10, So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It's probably the only good news in those verses. Hophni and Phinehas are gone, those wicked priests in the temple. Does God care that his people have used his, his ark as a, as a lucky charm? You bet he does. Israel's defeated and instead of losing 4,000 men, this time they lose 30,000 and they lose the ark as well. And I reckon there's this panic going on in Israel. I I think that they thought whoever possessed the ark, well, they possessed God and, and whoever has the ark, they can control God. And so now that the ark is in the hands of the Philistines, well, then the Philistines are going to have to do, well, then God's going to have to do whatever the Philistines tell him to do. God's power is now at their disposal. But have the Philistines captured God? Will God now serve them? Will He now be their lucky charm? Well, uh, we're going to have our next reading. Uh, So John is going to read from us from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, Neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on our God Dagon. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city 
both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. Thanks, Jono. So, have the Philistines captured God? Uh, will God now serve them? Will he be their lucky charm and bring them whatever they want? Well, the Philistines seem to think so. They, they take the ark and they set it up in Dagon, their God's temple, uh, and, and the ark is put there next to the statue of Dagon, like some sort of hunting trophy, like a deer head mounted on the wall. Uh, and now the Philistines, they had, this, they had this tradition whenever they won a battle. Uh, whenever they won a battle, if they captured the opposing king, they would never kill him on the battlefield, but they would take him back to their city. Uh, and before all the people, the Philistines uh, would uh, bring this defeated king and make him kneel down before the Philistine king. And while the crowds all were there gathering and cheering, uh, the Philistine king would take out his sword and he would lop off the hands of the defeated king. And then while the, scout, while the crowd is still cheering, then he'd take off his head. And so do you get the picture of what's going on here in Dagon's temple? Have a look again in chapter 5, verse 4. The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face, bowing down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and now lying on the threshold, only his body remained. There is the headless, handless body of Dagon, their God, slumped, before, slumped forward in kind of vanquished submission to the Lord, bowing before the ark of the Lord. Uh, but it gets worse. There's more things going on in this chapter to do with hands. Uh, the, the, the god Dagon, uh, he had lost his hands. But verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And then if we didn't get it the first time, it says it again in verse 7, partway through verse 7, the ark of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on, our god, and on Dagon, our God. You see, all this talk of hands, I think it's really deliberate. The writer is making the point that God's hand can't be forced. God and the work of his hands, they will do his will only. He can't, be, he can't be bent or coerced or manipulated to serve anyone else's agenda, be it the Israelites' agenda or the Philistines or anyone else at all. And the devastation that the Lord's hand, it, it continues to lay heavy on the Philistines. They're afflicted with tumours. And so the ark of the Lord gets passed around from city to city like a hot potato from Ashdod to Gad to Ekron. And, and, and everyone, everywhere it goes, everyone gets infected. And before you can say like vaccine rollout, um, the pandemic of tumours, it's, it's kind of swept all the way through the Philistines. Now the Philistines, they've had enough. They seek some expert advice uh, and, and, and to find out what happens, we're going to have our, our next and final reading. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how should we send it back to its place? They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumours and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. 
Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved but have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the car, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Thanks, Jono. Uh, now, I don't know what your Christmas list looks like, but I'm betting that a gold tumour and a gold rat is not on it. They're not things that you're really hanging out for from Santa this year. Uh, but what's going on there? I think the, I think the, the models of the rats and the tumours, I think, I think it's the Philistines attempting to be really clear what they want the God of Israel to do. Uh, what exactly they want God to take away from them as he leaves with his ark. Now, the Philistines are interesting here. They've worked a few things out about God. They've worked out that they're guilty. They stand guilty before him because of what they've done to his ark. They've worked out that he's powerful, that he needs to be feared. Uh, They seem to remember the story of of, of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. Uh, And so here, they're letting God rescue himself. And so what they do is they, they get the ark, they put it on the cart, they hitch up the two cows, and they, all, they sit there and look to see if the ark itself will return to the land of the Israelites. Uh, in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says this, They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with a chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left, the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. I think this picture here is supposed to be a little bit ridiculous. I mean, here is the ark driving itself home. No, no human is on board to steer the wagon. And there's a bunch of gold rats, like tourists on holidays, sitting on the cart enjoying the view as they uh, head back home. And following behind are the Uh, like conquered prisoners, are the five Philistine kings behind in procession, behind God's ark. It looks like God's had a great old time visiting the Philistines. He's single-handedly done what the Israelites couldn't do. He's defeated defeated the God of Dagon. He's crippled the nation. And now he's riding home on a wagon filled with gold. And surely as the Israelites watch the ark returning all by itself, the lesson that they should learn is this. Sure, the ark was captured, but the ark wasn't captured because God isn't powerful. The ark wasn't captured because God wasn't, because the Israelites weren't looking after the ark like they should have been. You see, the ark here doesn't need anyone to look after it. The ark alone has single-handedly defeated the whole nation of the Philistines. No, Israel were defeated not because they didn't look after the ark... They were defeated because they refused to submit to God as their king. They were defeated because they tried to use God to bend him to their will 
rather than obeying His will. That's what's really going on here. That's what's really taking place in these chapters. They tried to use God. Rather than bending to His will, they wanted Him to bend to their will. Now, I wonder what would happen if, like Indiana Jones style, someone found the ark today? What would happen? Uh, Would it still be powerful? Well, I reckon if you found the ark today, you could chop it up and use it for firewood. It wouldn't matter. You see, the ark has been superseded. It's, it's, It's just not important anymore. See, the ark was the empty throne, the symbol of God's presence, the symbol of uh, the king's presence with his people. And the ark was there, it was pointing forward to a day when the king himself would walk upon the earth. And sure, the ark may have seemed powerful, but when the real king came and demonstrated his power, it was power like people had never seen before. You see, when the king came and demonstrated his power, he had power over sickness and disease. He had power over the wind and the waves. He had power over demons and spiritual forces and evil. He had power such that nothing was outside of his control. See, Jesus, in his first coming, in his miracles, he gives us little pictures of the new creation that will come in his second coming. Pictures of disease destroyed, death defeated, evil vanquished, God's world back in harmony and right relationship with Him. But it's funny with Jesus, just like the ark, it's funny with Jesus, for all of His power, Jesus allows Himself to be taken captive, doesn't He? Jesus even allows Himself to be executed on a cross. Uh, Like the ark, Jesus, at His death, He seems to be defeated. He seems to be lost. He seems to be like everything has gone wrong. And even Jesus' followers, they think that uh, the cross was the end. Uh, have a look at Luke's gospel. In the, uh, the third day after Jesus has been crucified, uh, two of Jesus' disciples are out walking and they're wondering what has happened. And as they walk along, they bump into Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And it says this in Luke chapter 24. Uh, it says, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only visiting Jerusalem? So are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus was the one, the one who had rescued and redeemed God's world. And, and, and they, as they watched him be crucified, they thought that he had been captured and their faces were downcast. They thought that Jesus had been defeated and that all was lost. But just as the ark was taken captive only to show how powerful God really was, Jesus' capture will only show, serves to show how powerful he really is. You see, Jesus captured by death. It, it, it flips the script. It, it turns the tables. It triumphs over the grave. You see, Jesus is the powerful king. He rose again to new life after three days and he has come on God's agenda. 
and even death cannot get in his way. He has come as the king who commands our allegiance. And so how are we treating him? Are we treating Jesus as our servant? Are we treating him like the Uber Eats guy? Like the divine butler, the sky fairy, who is here to grant us wishes? whose, Whose job in life is to make sure that we are happy? Or are we treating him as our king? As the Lord? As the one who brings the kingdom of God? Not the kingdom of Andrew or Tim or whoever... I wonder how you're treating Jesus, the King. I think a a really helpful diagnostic of how we're treating Jesus as King is how and what we pray for. How and what we pray for. Do we only turn to God and ask for help when things go wrong? When our happiness is threatened? When we need something from Him? Do you find yourself making deals with God? God, if you fix this thing for me, then I will do this thing for you. Is that, is that how you pray? Is that when you pray? And the rest of the time when things are going well, when, when life is happy and, and normal, then you, you, you're quite, quite happy to just ignore God. But what if instead we came to God in the good times and the hard times? What if we came to Him and we asked Him things like this? We said, God, help me know you better. God, I want you to teach me what my life is all about, what my life should be about. God, help me serve you more faithfully, to be more obedient. And if it pleases you, God, take me and use me and make me useful in your purposes, for your kingdom. You see, I think that kind of prayer, well, that kind of prayer, well, it could mean that you start to make plans. Maybe you start to make plans to quit your job and to go to a place where people really need to hear about Jesus. That kind of prayer could see, see you um, staying in a challenging workplace where there are people there who are hard to love or even just hard to be around, but you're going to stay there because they need someone there who loves Jesus, who can point them to Jesus, who can, who can care for them like Jesus would. If you pray a prayer like that, then maybe it could see you redoing your budget or your diary or your commitments so that you can be more generous, so that you can have a greater capacity with your time and your money and your energy so that others might be cared for, so others might be matured as they follow the Lord Jesus. Praying like that, praying that God will, by His Spirit, help you get with His agenda, with His program, rather than telling God to get with yours, If you pray like that, it could turn your whole life upside down. Because what we see in God's Word here today is that God does not exist to serve our agenda, but we exist to serve God, His King and His Kingdom. God does not exist to affirm and deliver on our hopes and dreams. 
But we exist to find our meaning and our purpose and our identity in Him. So will you pray with me? Let's pray that it will be so. Heavenly Father, we see in your word that you are the King, uh, that you do not need our help, that through your own power you defeated the Philistines, that through your own power Jesus defeated death and sin and evil. And so, Lord, we don't come to you asking for you to be our butler or our fairy or our delivery guy, just delivering up things that we want. But Lord, we come to you asking that you will define our lives and our lives' purposes. Lord, help us to know you better. Lord, teach us what life is all about, what our life should be about. Lord, help us to serve you more faithfully, to be more obedient to you. And Lord, if it pleases you, Take us and use us. Make us useful for your purposes. And Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.